verses uh, from 1 Corinthians 16. Maybe they're on the screen. Are they on the screen? Great. Uh, Let me read them to you. Paul says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Let me just say a word of prayer, and then we'll look at this. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are the God who speaks. And so, dear Father, speak to each one of us. Open our hearts that we might hear your word. Soften them that by the Holy Spirit we may obey you this week. All for the glory of Jesus, we ask. In his name, amen. Two very short verses. And Paul is obviously writing about a particular situation in Ephesus... And you can read about that, if you'd like to, later in Acts 19 and 20. Now, clearly, I'm not Paul, and you're not Paul, and we're not in Ephesus, and you're not normally in Ephesus. But I do think that what Paul says here about that particular situation tells us something more universal, or gives us a hint of something more universal about all the work of God's kingdom. That wherever we are, whether in Japan, or in Christchurch, or in Ephesus, there's always a wide open door whether we see it or not there is a wide open door for effective work paul said didn't he as he was chained to a roman soldier that the gospel is advancing and if paul can say that chained to a roman soldier in prison how much more so in the freedom we enjoy here but as god's kingdom advances whenever god's kingdom advances there is opposition there are many adversaries now this is not the normal kind of sermon we have here. We're not looking carefully at a a longer passage and looking at the context and that kind of things. And as somebody who teaches that kind of preaching, I feel slightly nervous just preaching on two verses. But I want to just draw uh, three things, three realities about both of these things, both the open door and the adversaries. And as I've reflected on these verses over the past, I don't know, year or so, I've been greatly encouraged by them. First of all, There are many adversaries. Now, as Paul was thinking about this, I imagine he was thinking of those who shouted him down in the synagogue in Ephesus. Or maybe those silversmiths who were so enraged that they were losing customers that they incited a riot. And massive riot in Ephesus. Maybe that's who he has in mind. But as we step back more generally, whenever the gospel goes out, there are adversaries. There is opposition, and knowing that opposition is not odd or unusual, I think helps us when we face it. Now, three different kinds of adversaries. And the first is maybe slightly surprising. The first is the enemy within. The enemy within each of us. I long with all my heart for Jesus to be glorified. I long with all my heart for his kingdom to advance around the world. And yet at the same time, I want my kingdom. I want myself to be glorified. Romans 7, Paul says really clearly, doesn't he? Famous passage. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul, that man so consecrated to God, longing for his kingdom to go out, and yet knowing that actually the very thing he wants, he doesn't do. Now, obviously... There are some who ruin their ministries by obvious, blatant sin. Their sin so discredits the gospel. But I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about more the low-level, day-by-day hindrance that arises from within. 
I want Jesus to advance, but if I'm honest, I want my comfort. And so when given an opportunity that might be uh, good to speak of Jesus, but actually I know I'll, I'll get some pushback so often, I keep my mouth shut. Number of times I've gone to bed full of excitement at what the Samurai Projects is doing, and I've woken up in the morning and I've just thought, oh, it's so hopeless, and I've been discouraged. Oh, why well, put the hard yards in today? I've been tempted to slack off. And as we face that, as I face that, we've got a choice, don't we? We can give ourselves a kind of pep talk and say, well, that's not the real me. We can say, oh, really, I'm committed. Or we can own it and confess it and say, actually, do you know what, Jesus, that is the real me. I long that your kingdom would advance, but at the same time, there's part of me that's lazy. There's part of me that just wants an easy life. And we say that not to beat ourselves up, do we, but to acknowledge and receive afresh the forgiveness of the gospel. Jesus, by nature, though you've done so much for me, though you've given your son on the cross for me, though you've given everything for me, by nature, I'm lukewarm. Please forgive me. And then restore me and purify me and fill me afresh with your joy that I might enjoy, not in duty, do your work. There's the enemy within. But of course there's the enemy within the church. As I look around, and this is true of Japan, but true of so many other places I take it to, that Christians failing to love one another. Christians failing to agree, I want it my way. Or we won't work with that organization because, oh, they're on the same page, but they're not quite the same vision, not quite the same emphasis. And so what could be effective work is hindered. Enemies within. I wonder what that kind of thing would be in New Zealand. I wonder what that kind of thing might be in St. Stephen's. And the danger is it damages and hinders. And friends, we can, again, pretend it's not there. We can cover it up or we can say, actually, I'm part of the problem. <laughs> my, my sin within hinders the work of the gospel, that sometimes I'm the very adversary that hinders the gospel. And if we say, sorry... Isn't God gracious? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from every kind of wrong that we can again reconsecrate ourselves to his service. Well, the enemy within. The second is the reality that life in a foreign world is hard. Life in a foreign world is hard. Now, what I'm... The next... Four sentences are quite hard. I wish I'd put them on the screen. Um, the, the Westminster Shorter Chasm, an old summary of Christian faith, has this to say, and this, this is quite hard, so bear with me one second. But it says, What is the misery of that estate wherein to man fell? That is to say, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened to human beings? And the answer comes back, All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God. We can't have fellowship with God. We are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell. But you see that picture that those Puritans painted, that actually life is one full of miseries. Life in a fallen world is hard. I remember a, a teacher of mine being asked to preach at a, a, a wedding of some students. And he started this wedding saying, there's a sense that in marriage, as two sinners come together, that they'll be miserable. 
that it's a miracle when there's any happiness. It's quite an extraordinary thing to say at a wedding. But there's something that's true about that, isn't there? Two sinners coming together. And actually, my sin's bad enough, but add another sinner. How much more mess will there be? And actually, if we think it's going to be like Disney, it's hard work. Even harder work than we'd expect because we're not facing up to reality. Well, in the same way, everything around us doesn't, it tells us life should be comfortable. And yet the Bible says life is so often miserable. When Paul was shipwrecked, was that an opposition to his ministry? Or was that just the world doesn't work? As our kids have gone into Japanese schools and found that they've been outsiders and they're odd because they're foreign. Is that opposition for the gospel or is that just life in a fallen world where we don't get on and unusual people are are looked down on? As you've poured out your heart for a friend and you've been seeking to reach someone prayerfully for Christ and they've just shunned you or been rude for you, is that opposition for the gospel or is that just life in a fallen world? chatted to a, a brother in Australia who does a similar work to, to we do, and I was just catching up, and he, I hope, is going to help coach me in thinking, how do we expand the samurai projects? And I, I said to him, look, how's it going? And uh, he, he asked me some questions, and no, tell me how it's really going. And he just said, do you know what? I just expect every day to be hard. And so when something doesn't go wrong or when it's not miserable, I'm, I'm just full of thankfulness. And I came away from that thinking, that was a bit gloomy. Did I catch him on a kind of Eeyore-ish day? But there is actually something quite profound about that. If we expect life to be hard, we're so thankful when it's not. But if we expect it to be wonderful, when we live a normal life in a fallen world, we're discouraged. But life in a fallen world is especially miserable Because there's an enemy that rages, isn't there? Now, I don't want to have a kind of Ballinger pity party. I feel like I could easily give you a Ballinger pity party. But there are people here who, last year, 18 months, have been much harder than ours. And certainly, Christians around the world, life is much, much harder than it is for us. But that's not to say we haven't had difficulties. The kids have gone to school, and they've been outsiders. And Ren's teacher was a bully for a long time, and that had left its pain at the time and it scars now uh, so much so that he started hearing kind of voices in an effort to not go to school we've had difficulties at work where seemingly godly people have been angry at others and then failed to own their sin in fact saying no i'm behaving like the prophet nathan i'm showing other people their sin uh, we've had health issues uh, we've had all kinds of things And we're so grateful that people have been praying for us. But a number of people said, so many things are going on. Is this a spiritual attack? Is the devil raging because you're in such a dark place? And the answer is, I don't know. I think the answer from the Bible is, it could be. Don't have time to open it up. But look later at Job chapter 1 and 2 and 3. And we see so clearly there a picture of a devil who's real, a Satan who's real. But a Satan who's under God's authority. And if you know that story of Job, Satan comes to God and and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And in that story, Satan's role seems to be to kind of refine Job's Job's faith and demonstrate he's a true believer. And Satan says to God, well, yes, Job seems righteous, 
But he's only righteous, he's only faithful to you because you've blessed him so much. Take the blessings away and he'll curse you. And so God says to Satan, behold, Job is in your hands. And then all kinds of things happen to Job. Wind comes and destroys the building, his children in and kill them. Bandits come and destroy his property. He's inflicted with diseases. His health is ruined. But the, and we know that that's the work of Satan, and we know that God has allowed it. But do you know, here's the funny thing. Aren't those kind of things happening to believers and unbelievers all around the world all the time? Health trashed. Car broken into. Natural disaster. People dying. Now, in that instance, we know it is the work of the devil. But often we don't know. Enna was walking on the way to school one day. And a man is waiting in a bush and jumps out and flashes her. Is that because she's a believer? Or is that because she's in a fallen world? Is that a spiritual attack? I don't know. And I'm not sure if I did know how it would make any difference. We could say the same thing for numerous trials here. Something goes badly wrong. Is that the work of the devil? Or is that just life in a fallen world? All we do know is the devil is real and he's raging and he's long to discourage us. But when we hear that, what difference does it actually make? God is over all of that, working out his purposes. And so we ask one another, pray for me. We entrust ourselves to our faithful heavenly father. And in a sense, knowing why it's happened is almost irrelevant. But what we do know is our Father is over those things. And so we entrust ourselves to him and we encourage one another. Because there is an enemy of rages. And life in a fallen world is miserable. But here's the third opponents. There are particular people who would hate the gospel to advance. Particular people who desire to stop it. I wonder if you've ever thought about that for more than a few moments. There are people out there who would love St. Stephen's to stuff up. They'd love that to be on the front page of the press, wouldn't they? They'd love the diocese to fail because they'd love the gospel to fail. Now, we need to know that's normal. Those silversmiths in Ephesus had been making little idols. And people in Ephesus bought their idols and paid money to the silversmiths and suddenly people are becoming Christians so they're getting rid of the idols and the silversmiths are no morons. They see that their business model is under threat and so they start a riot. Now in Japan, 99% of people have no interest in Jesus. And there's much that's wonderful about Japan but there's many things that because there's not Christian influence, uh, are kind of seedy. Uh, There's a lot of uh, semi-illegal gambling run by the mafia, the Yakuza. Uh, Sex outside of marriage is just normal. Somebody told me the other day that when uh, women pack for their husband's business trips, invariably the woman packs for the husband's business trips in Japan, uh, they will routinely put contraception in their husband's bags. Isn't that shocking from a Christian point of view? Everywhere you go, there are shrines 
And the whole basis of those shrines is you pray for good luck. And more out of fear, if you don't pray, something bad might happen to you. And when only 1% of the population are Christians, well, that gambling and that sex industry and that shrine industry, all of it, multi-billion dollar industries, doesn't care. But imagine if 10% of the population became Christians. 20% of the population became Christians. You can imagine how the mafia and the priests and the, the, the pimps would be raging. And there'd be opposition because their trade is destroyed. Now, we personally haven't experienced much of that. Wren, uh, at school, tried to give out some uh, little manga gospels, the gospel in a kind of comic book form. And his teacher was really angry. And he said, you can't do that in school. So Wren said, well, I'll do it outside the school gate. But even that was kind of tricky. Gave it to one of his friends, and his friend's mother saw it and said, you are not under any circumstances to read that. Return it. Just a small example. Now, some of you would have experienced really hard human opposition. You wanted to be baptized, and your parents were angry. You wanted to go do something for the church or give money to the church. And Why would you waste your life? Why would you waste your money? There are always adversaries. And friends, we need to know that so that when it happens, we're not surprised. We had a lovely holiday uh, just before we came here. We went up into the mountains and uh, stayed in a kind of missionary, it used to be a missionary community in an old log cabin uh, by a lake. Now, I hate being wet. And we were swimming every day in the lake and I'd hang my togs up on the line and just one day, they'd, they'd not dried overnight. I guess it rained or something. And I remember waking up in the morning in this beautiful lake and feeling, oh, this is a bit grim. I have to put on these wet trunks. And very first world problem, but I, I'm on holiday. Why do I have to have this kind of wet swimming trunks on? But imagine if I was in Ukraine and I'm on the front line fighting in a, in a wet trench and my trousers are a bit damp. It's, it's not even going to register, is it? And there are, in some ways, our first world problems, our discomforts, the things we grumble about, the things that happen to us, that are opposition. We see them so starkly and we're discouraged because we think we're on holiday and forget that we're in a war, not a war to defend our country, but a war to advance the kingdom of God. And so things that shouldn't be so important are too important from us. And reorientating and remembering that there will always be opposition. It's not normal, but it's okay because our home is not here. It is in heaven. That encourages us. The devil rages. Life in a fallen world is miserable. There are many adversaries, so let's encourage one another. Let's pray for one another. Well, that's the hard news. But the flip side of that is there is a wide open door for effective work. It's so wonderful to come here and see this new building, to see new faces, see the gospel advancing in Christchurch. As we look around in New Zealand, look around in uh, Japan, this year we've got 11 samurai, 11 interns studying with us. And it's wonderful to have the opportunity to open the Bible with them, to see the light bulb going on as they realize, oh, I can do this. Oh, I thought it was an old book I didn't understand, but I can teach this. It's wonderful to run training for pastors. Some of the older pastors saying, nobody trained us, we don't know what we're doing, and that humility, opportunities. 
It's been wonderful to have interest from other areas of Japan saying, we've heard what you're doing. We'd like to do it too. Please tell us what you're doing. There are obvious times when the, the, there's an open door. But if I'm totally honest, there are other days, other weeks, sometimes other months, where it looks like nothing's happening. Maybe you feel the same. The work is slow. Is God really doing anything? But I take it this says, and the wider Bible says, there is always an open door for the gospel. Let me give you briefly three reasons. The first is, this is God's plan A. There's no plan B. When we're laboring for God's kingdom, we're going with the grain of world history. God's plan is that the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the, uh, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. His plan, A, is that all will come into knowledge of the conformity of, of his will, that all will bow the knee before Jesus, that we're on the winning side, that Jesus' death was not in vain, that people may shun him now, but one day all will see him. And so anything we do with our words, with our actions, with our money, anything we can do to help someone become more like Jesus help others to come to know Jesus. We're working with the grain of world history. As I prepared this, I was in an, partly in an airport and um, thinking of those travelators, you know those walking travelators? And you get on them and they'll go whether you walk or not. And there's a sense that that is what world history is like, isn't it? God is going to bring his kingdom whether we get on the travelator or not. And we can get on the travelator and we can walk with it and we can get there sooner if you like. Or we can, if we're foolish, walk against it. We can walk off it. But God is doing his thing. And the question is, will we walk with him? I look out of my window. We've got 45th floor. We have a wonderful view of Tokyo. I, I think from our window we could probably see 10 million people. I mean, obviously, you actually can't see them. But, you know, in our view line, there must be about 10 million people. And all of them secularized and disinterested. As I wander around Christchurch, I think, it just seems so hopeless. People, they've been to church and they've had enough. They don't want to hear it anymore. And yet this tells us, no, one day the kingdom will come in all its glory. And so every silent prayer, every bearing up under pressure, every uh, phone call that says to someone, keep going, Every time we give a tract or an invite to a friend, we're working with the grain of God's plan. I wonder what is it that we today can do? We're on the travelator. What can we do to move forward faster? Well, the second thing is God's providential control. That God is running the world and in control of every detail. So that means the door is not open when situations become more favorable, but the door is open now. That the situation you're in today, friend, whether your Jack Harris learned that your dear wife has passed away, or whether life is rosy or somewhere in between, the situation you're in now is for your good and for his glory, and there are ways to advance his kingdom. If you're anything like me, it's so easy to think, oh, when that's sorted out, I'll be wholehearted for Jesus. When I've got
got my house sorted out, I'll, I'll put more time into church. When, when I've, my career moves on to the next stage, when the kids are a bit older, when whatever it is, when that changes, when that's easier, and we can think like that as a church, can't we? Oh, you know, when this ministry settles down, when we get a building, when we do this, when we do that. And of course, those things would make our lives easier. But God isn't asking us to plan and when things are right, what is it we need to do now? Now is the time when the door is open because he is providentially in charge of everything. One of the problems in Japan, as I said earlier, is some average age of a pastor is 70. And pastors, I think here, pastors are by and large looked after well and we were so grateful for the way you cared for us when we were here and uh, you know you know your bills are going to be paid, you know that there's a pension at the end, you're not going to get rich, but you're looked after. But in Japan, it, being a pastor, it is, there's no financial security, there's probably no pension. And one person, a really keen person, a kind of Chris Farr person in, in a church, his son was born and he was such a joyful Christian, such a loyal servant of the church. But as his son is born, he says, I will love my son and he can do anything. I will support him whatever he does, but the one thing I do not want him to do is be a pastor. Because it's too hard, too miserable. And part of the reason for that is that pastors are expected to, or maybe not expected, they feel, I think, that if they're going to be a pastor, they have to sacrifice everything, including their families often. Church comes before family. Now, uh, some of you know this already, but um, uh, I think it was in June, I led a, a mission trip to the north of Japan with uh, some interns, and we were, drove up there. We were only up there for four or five days, and uh, on day two, we had a lovely day knocking the doors and uh, just meeting unbelievers, and lots of people not interested, or they politely said thank you, but no thanks. There was one woman who was really interested, and I thought, brilliant, I'm going to follow her up the next day, and I'm going to take a, a young mother in the church and introduce her. And Anyway, that evening, I had a phone call from Charlie. I feel not well. I think I may need to go to hospital. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's fine. Two hours later, she said, I'm now in the hospital, and the uh, doctor's saying it's life-threatening. Turns out Charlie was pregnant. It was an ectopic pregnancy. Uh, and I love my wife, so I said to the guys, guys, I'm going to go home. I'd missed the last bullet train, jump in the car, it's a six-hour drive, and I did it without thinking. For us, that's what my wife could be dying. I need to go. It's a no-brainer. I love my wife. She needs me. I'll go. But there was, in the days that, uh, that was frustrating timing. But as we did a review with, this, with the interns the next week. What did you learn from this trip? It was very striking that the very first thing that one of these young guys who wants to be a pastor said was, I was struck that James put his family ahead of the ministry. Now to me, I just did what I needed to do. But I take it that my tiny faithfulness made an impression on him. I take it that formed him that when he's a pastor, he'll have learned the lesson that family is ahead of ministry. And I thought, Lord, it's not the way I'd have chosen it, but actually that fruitfulness is probably better than anything I could have done if I'd stayed there for five days. And friends, in the same way, it can be easy to think on it, if God gives me a big thing, 
But actually, for some of you, it was getting here to church this morning. That small act of faithfulness, showing the kids in the mess and the business, church is first. For some, it will be the phone call this afternoon to the, the awkward relative. Not a great thing, but that small act of faithfulness God will use to build his kingdom to keep that person going. Maybe tomorrow morning, the small act of saying to a friend, I went to church yesterday. I learned something about Jesus yesterday. As we pray for Joel, as we pray for the leaders, as we set aside some small amount of money maybe for the, for the kingdom or for the, for the church or uh, for the new building, it may seem not much. God will use that now because he's over everything. What is it today, this week? It may not be a big thing, but the little act of faithfulness that can advance the kingdom. Friends, I wonder what that is for you this week. It's worth it because the door is open and God will use it. But here's the third thing, very briefly. It's the power of of God's word. There's a wide open door for the gospel because God's word that's in our pockets, literally for many of us in our pockets now on our smartphones, is powerful. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, Paul says, Romans 1. My word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. When you write a card to someone with a Bible verse, when you share a little bit of your testimony about how Jesus has worked in your life, when you say, I, I know that God is with me because the Bible tells me so, God is working. I can kid myself in English that I can do something with my words. I can stand up and sometimes I can make you laugh. And I can kid myself that my words are doing something. But of course, it's complete nonsense. Unless God works, I can do nothing. Now, in Japanese, I can't kid myself because every time I stand up, I sound like a seven-year-old. There's mistakes, and I sound foolish, and it seems pathetic. But it's really interesting for me. Think back 50, 60, 70 years ago to these missionaries without Duolingo and without electric dictionaries and without all the aids they have for communicating. They're, objectively, their Japanese was less good than mine. Must have been. And yet, in their bro even more broken language, it wasn't because they were great communicators. It's because they sowed the word of God. And God's Holy Spirit took it in all its brokenness and convicted people of their sins and showed them Jesus. And so, friend, you too, you might feel you can't communicate well. And maybe you can't. But you're not the chief communicator. The Holy Spirit takes that word of God and it will not return empty. I'm so excited next term. This, all of the interns will do an evangelism course. And the unique thing about this evangelism course, they're not just learning how to evangelize, but they have to do a session. They have to do three sessions, I think, with uh, themselves and an unbeliever and a coach. And so all of them are going to fire with live ammunition. They're going to be unbelievers hearing the gospel. And I wonder what God will do and friends, in the same way, I wonder what he'll do as we invite folk to an evangelistic event. Maybe invite people to that, your kids' friends to that uh, movie night or to holiday club. What is it? But they hear the word of God 
and God works. Well, friends, whether it seems it or not, there is a wide open door for gospel work. So let's walk through it. Because that is God's plan A. Whenever we do it, we're walking with the grain. And he, his word is powerful. He will work through us now. So my dear friends, today, what is it you can do? In the midst of much opposition, in the midst of many adversaries, what can you, brother or sister, do today? To make Jesus known. To bring about his kingdom. We're so, so grateful for your partnership. And partnership is two ways. We're so grateful to see how God is building here. But let's just spend a moment together thinking, what is it today, this week, that I can do to build God's kingdom? Spend a few minutes praying, uh, a few minutes thinking, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, you say through Paul, there is a wide door for effective work. And you warn us there are many adversaries. Father, help us to see with the eyes of faith even in a place that doesn't seem to want to know Jesus, that the door is open. So whether that's phoning someone, or writing a note, or asking, could I share my testimony, or whatever that might be, we pray, dear Father, help us with the eyes of faith to overcome the adversaries, and to boldly advance your kingdom with our lives with our lips, with our wallets, with everything you give us, knowing that this is not our best life now, but that our best life awaits us in heaven, when we will spend eternity with you, when we will rejoice in Jesus who gave all for us. And we ask it all for his sake, for his glory, and for our good that we might be made more like him. Amen.